Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. Uh, A reading from Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So, I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Jen and I were out and about yesterday, and I noticed two things. First, uh, well, and it's about clothes. It's all about clothes. A lot of college football shirts yesterday. How about those buffs? I'm going to invite Deion Sanders. I'm going to invite Deion. There's a college football fan. I'm going to invite uh, Deion Sanders to come here and preach at Waterstone. So you can join me in. The other thing I noticed was a lot of flowery Hawaiian shirts yesterday uh, in honor of uh, Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, we're all indeed hoping he finds his lost shaker of salt <laughs> now. The other thing to notice this morning is that all of us have on the garments of praise. What an amazing time of worship this morning, how you're giving your lives. Worship, you know, is not just coming here, singing a few songs and getting a good message and going home. You come here, you lay your life down again. You put everything in his hands. You trust him with all that you have. The garments of praise. The high point of our worship this morning will be after the message, we will come to the table of the Lord. And this morning, as you'll hear, we're calling it the table of rest this morning. So you be preparing, you be thinking about how you want to be with Jesus as you take those elements and have some time with him, and may your heart find rest this morning. It's tradition at Waterstone that um, in January, the first few weeks of the year, we talk about our mission and vision, and we get charged up and ready to go for another year. That's the calendar year. And then we also take a a weekend or two in September, and we again talk about mission and vision. And so indeed, we're going to do that this week and next, 
but a little different spin uh, on this time around as we talk about mission. So let me begin to unpack that, what we're going to do, and then we'll jump right in. But here's our mission. Would you read it aloud together? This is why we exist, to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ to proclaim His kingdom and demonstrate His love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor. That's our mission. Now, some of you help me out here. This is the audience participation part. We live out that mission by the practice of three rhythms. Do any of you remember any of those three rhythms? Shout one out. I, I think I heard them all. So, yes, good. Transform. That's seeing the kingdom of Jesus grow in us, and we become like Jesus and live for others. We, we have growth in our lives to become more like him. The second rhythm I heard was neighboring. That's seeing God's kingdom expand to the people with whom we live, work, and play. It's the influence of Jesus from us to them, and uh, God willing, seeing them come to seek God's kingdom first. And then the third rhythm I heard was restore. That's seeing God's kingdom come and uh, 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 help repair uh, the, the broken systems of our world. It's that rhythm where we come alongside the vulnerable in our world. So we are relentless in living out this mission, practicing these three rhythms. Here's the spin on it this morning, these next two weeks. The question I wanna ask is this. You ready? Deep breath. Whew. What keeps us going? That's a lot of work. It's relentless. You and I both know, like, there's always growth to do. There's always people to reach. There's always situations to help. What keeps us going on mission? The answer to that is this, a vision. It's a vision of a day when we will no longer need to practice the transform rhythm. Because all of us will be like Jesus in fullness. And there will come a day when we will not need to practice the neighbor rhythm anymore. Because heaven on earth will be full. And there will come a day when we will no longer need to practice the restore rhythm because there will be no more tears or evil or death anymore. That vision is what motivates us to keep going. That vision invading the present. What is that vision? We've done it this morning. Worship. Bowing down before the God who rules all, who leads all, who is in all, all in all, bowing down and worshiping him. Let me say it this way. Here's the theme for the next two weeks. Worship is the fuel of mission. We come here, we worship, we get it straight again, we go out and we practice our rhythms. Worship is the fuel of mission. So the, I'd like to talk about worship. This morning we're going to do a very basic primer on worship. We're going to ask three questions. What is worship? Why do we worship? And how do we worship? We're going to use a Psalm 95 that Josh read earlier. Why Psalm 95? Psalm 95 is one of the most well-known psalms for describing the people of God in worship. As you'll see in a minute, it's all about worship. In fact, in St. Benedict's uh, spiritual practices, um, 
Every morning when practicing the Benedictine rule, when your feet hit the floor, the first words out of your mouth are from Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is how we worship. So let's dive in from Psalm 95 and talk about the fuel of mission, which is worship. And let's start with what is worship? Here's a definition that I think if you read 20 books on worship, you would, you would come up with this definition, a composite definition. Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to an object with one's entire being. Ascribing value with one's entire being. Let's unpack those two things. One's entire being. If you look at Psalm 95, in the, even in the first two verses, Psalm, uh, verse 1 and 2, you see that, first of all, the emotions are engaged. I've, we've underlined these words, sing for joy, shout aloud, come before him with thanksgiving, extol him with music and song. Each of those is a, is a very emotional activity. So, Worshiping God is the entire being engaged, and the first of which is our emotions. And we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about that. But the second thing that we see engaged in verse 6, it says, come, let us kneel. Let us bow down in worship. That's the engagement of the will. As we said earlier, when we come to worship, we are laying it down again. We are saying to our will, bow down before the king and give everything you are and everything you have. It's a choice. It's the will. And then thirdly, so it's the emotions, it's the will, and then we come to the end of verse 7, beginning of verse 8, and we hear this. Today, if you would hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, and we'll talk a little bit more about this next week, this part of the passage, but I want you to know it's an engagement of the mind. What the psalmist is doing is actually beginning to preach a sermon from Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. He's taking them back to a story from the Old Testament, and he's saying, don't be like this. So do you see how worship engages the entire being? It's the emotions, it's the will, and it's the mind. So let me just underline that real quick. We all have our different preferences in worship. We all have things that we really like to do, things we don't really like to do. But what I do hope you get from this picture is that it's all of them. We need to engage the entire being. So you might in worship like to dance, sing, and shout. Woohoo! But if that worship does not engage your will, if it doesn't call you to something, and if that worship doesn't make you think through like what's true, then no matter how much fun you have, it's not worship. And the opposite is true. Some of us, we worship like we're brains on a stick. And we just like to think and go deep. And we like to, you know, be challenged to something. But if our heart is cold and hard and judgmental, and it's not fun, That's not worship. So, I've been thinking this week, engaging the entire being. Let me know what you think about this. Where does Waterstone need to grow in our worship as we think about engaging our entire being? I'm just going to put my opinion out there, although I think we are growing. I mean, each week, 
I think we're growing in our worship. But the one area that I would challenge us, push us a little bit on, is that first part. Do we worship God emotionally here in the suburbs of Littleton? Emotion. So what I want to do is take another pass and I pulled out the Hebrew lexicon this week, went back to Hebrew, and I looked up some of these words. This will be fun, I hope. Now, if you go back to verses one and two, and I, I, the first one, it says, uh, to sing for joy. I think it's the next slide. Sing for joy. The definition. I know I've, I'm all over the manuscript. There it is. Thank you. Uh, the, the encouragement is to sing for joy. Here's what this means. Make a loud public noise <laughs> that signals strong feeling. Give a ringing shout or twang. Yeah, now hold on. That first of all confirms my worst fear that country music may be involved in worship. But let's get beyond that. Would you say that when the psalmist says, come, sing for joy, that this is us? Make a loud public noise that signals strong feeling. By the way, I want to be clear. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not shooting for one thing here. I don't think it's monolithic. I think this can look different for different personalities and different wiring. So I'm not after one thing. What I am asking us to do is within you and how you're wired, what does this look like? Okay? Let's go on to the second one. The encouragement is to shout aloud, and it's actually said twice in verse 1 and 2, shout aloud and extol are the same word, and it means to raise a shout of war or triumph, a horn blast. Now, you're thinking, why is that? Well, we know exactly what this is. Next week, what, I don't know how many teams are in the NFL, but all of them will gather in a corner of an end zone, and someone with a really loud voice will get in the middle of the huddle and they will say, this is our moment. We were made for this. Let's go. Or some variation of that theme. That is this. Someone shouting, let's go. We were made for this. What does that look like for you? Lastly, the encouragement is to come before, and it literally reads, his face with baruka, with blessing. It's not just thanksgiving like thanks for my job or thanks for this meal. It's, it's calling out the attributes of God that you want to bless. So you come before his face. It's a standing invitation from the maker of the world to come before him and bless him. So, this is the idea of what it looks like to worship with one's entire being. So, let me ask a question here. Uh, just put it up. Uh, Helmut, if we could go to the question. Again, I know I'm really all over the place. Don't resign. 
There's one a slide that says the question. Here it's the question. The question is, when people leave worship with us, do they have a sense that these people are really excited about God? I mean, really affected. Wrestle with that and what part you can play. We worship him with our entire being. Now, where does that energy come from? Like, where does this emotional energy come from? It comes from this idea of the first part of the definition of worship, that we are ascribing ultimate value to an object. We engage our entire being because we are ascribing value to an object. And that's what the psalmist says. If you look again at verse 3, I mean, verses 1 and 2, it says, Give him your whole entire being, verse 3. Why? Because, for the Lord is the great king, is great God, the great king above all gods. The reason we can engage our entire being and get so ramped up is because it's a great king we're worshiping. His greatness. And then in verse 6, the same thing. Because, this is why we engage the entire being, he's our God. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. So we get our entire beings engaged because we're ascribing ultimate value of the one who is great and the one who is good. That's what ramps our worship. Now, that's what we come here to do each week, to enumerate, to count, to measure, to weigh, to reckon, to reason again about how great God is and how good God is. That's worship and that's what we're doing. The problem is we sometimes forget what we're doing. So the problem is sometimes, you know, we don't even think about it till we get here. The problem is sometimes we just don't always realize what we have because we have the greatness and goodness of God in our life. The best illustration of this I've ever heard, I've heard it from several preachers, it's not original with me, but it's the story of a young teenage gal who gets a brooch given to her by her grandmother. And you can imagine teenage girl, an old brooch given by an old woman, she is her grandmother, but let's be honest, an old brooch from an old woman. She's grateful, puts it in her jewelry box, kind of forgets about it, goes through life, One day, she's going through cleaning out her jewelry box again and comes across that brooch. Her first thought is, oh, how I miss Grandma. Her second thought is, what is this? What is this? She decides she's going to take it to a jeweler and get it appraised and find out what it is. And so she goes in, gives it to the jeweler. The jeweler puts on that halo thing with the telescope on his eye, looks at it, and... (laughs) she notices like little beads of sweat start to break out on his forehead. And then she notices that his breathing like it gets a little shallow. The jeweler says, would you excuse me? I need to go in the back and look at this with a different tool. At first she's like, wait, you're not leaving with my brooch. But he, he goes back. He puts on another one of those little things with, and lenses in both eyes, looks at it, and comes to understand that this is an historic brooch. This is like a one of a kind. Like they no longer have this craftsmanship or these elements even. 
He comes back out, and the only thing he knows to do after holding this in his hand is to evangelize this woman. He says something like, you are far more ignorant than you ever imagined, (laughs) but far more wealthy than you ever dared hope. She receives the good news, and she begins to understand that her life has in no way been living in accordance with what she possesses. And she, here it is, worship, she is worth-shaped by the beauty of the brooch. That's worship, to be worth-shaped by the beauty, by the glory of the king. You know, we live in a growing secular culture, but still, Today, surveys continue to show that most people still believe in God. And they would say something like, I have God in my life and I pray to God. But I wonder sometimes if that, what most people mean by having God in their life is what this woman means by having a brooch in her life. They're completely unaffected, completely unchanged, completely unaware of what they have in having God. To worship is to remind ourselves week after week after week of what we have when we have God in our life. So Waterstone, can we engage that way when we come here and sit here Saturday night, Sunday morning, week after week, to work hard at trying to understand what we have because we have God. That's worship. But why do we worship? I mean, what, again, motivates that worship week after week after week? I would say two things. We worship for two reasons. The first reason that we worship is because of the beauty of God, his greatness and his goodness. So I want to go back again to the psalm and see these things playing out. If you go back to verse 3 through 5, the greatness of God. He's the great God, the great king above all gods. And then in the beauty of poetry, the psalmist, uh, traditionally uh, uh, given to David, David talks about what we call merisms. It's a language tool that says you put on every end the extreme. So the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks to say everything in between God rules. And again, you see the sea is his and the dry land is his and everything in between God rules. So let's put on our jewel or glass and look at the refraction of glory that's coming through these particular words of this poem as we understand the greatness of God. Let's talk about the depths of the earth for a moment. In David's day, the depths of the earth were known as the Mediterranean Sea. And the fierceness of storm, in fact, the Greeks would come along and later call the deepest parts of the Mediterranean Hades, the place where you don't live, you don't survive. We know the deepest place on the earth is what? Yes, the Mariana Trench. There's a place in the Mariana Trench called the Challenger Deep. It's near Guam. It's in the Western Pacific. Here's a stat sheet. It's 36,037 feet deep. That's 
miles, which is the distance from right here on Bowles to Old Littleton, deep. Or if this is better for you, it's 43,600 pieces of spaghetti end to end. It's 1,580 miles long, which is five times the length of the Grand Canyon. Its depth causes immense pressure, eight tons per square inch, which is estimated to be a 1,000 elephants standing on a taxi cab. At the bottom of the Mariana Trench, the most popular, uh, popular populous, they're going to be popular, um, is what's known as a worm called a sea cucumber because they're shaped in size like a cucumber. And what sea cucumbers do is they eat sand and they suck the algae out and then through a process called bioturbation, which we lay people commonly call pooping, <laughs> they excrete clean sand. And the chemicals, when they bioturbate, that come out, fertilize the coral. And these sea cucumbers are in every ocean and every body of salt water around the globe, 60% of the world, which as we all know, the oceans are what enable us to have air to breathe. Are you with me? Who is this God ruling the world? Well, he's the one that puts sea cucumbers at the bottom of the ocean so we don't asphyxiate. How great is he? That's the depths. How about the heights? We all know, well, in David's day, it was, um, what was it? It's near the Golan Heights, the peaks. Oh, Mount Hermon, 7,000 feet. They know nothing about mountains in Israel. <laughs> Today, it's Mount Everest, over 29,000 feet. How much does Mount Everest weigh? Well, I needed some very smart people on that question, so I went to the Pennsylvania State University website, <laughs> and I found that Mount Everest weighs 357 trillion pounds, not counting ice and snow, not counting the junkyard. You know Mount Everest is the highest junkyard in the world, oxygen bottles, food packaging, climbing gear, torn tents, and last year alone, 18,000 pounds of poop. I'm sorry, there's a lot of poop in the, the message today. <laughs> Mount Everest is also the highest graveyard in the world. 322 people have died on Mount Everest. In one stretch, ironically called the Rainbow Valley. There's 200 dead bodies. And they call it the Rainbow Valley because of the color of mountain gear. There's nothing on Mount Everest except jumping spiders. They go as high as 24,000 feet. They weigh 13.5 milligrams. They are the size of a pill capsule. And the scientists say that the reason that a, these pill-jumping spiders get, don't get blown off the mountain is because they're experts in shelter. And the common wisdom is 
that if you don't see jumping spiders where you are, you might be in trouble. How is this that from sea cucumbers to jumping spiders, God's in charge? He's at work. He's ruling his world. If God is so great that he puts this world together and holds it together by sea cucumbers and jumping spiders, let me ask you something. And I mean no offense, but what's your problem? Don't misunderstand. We all have problems, and they are hard, and they hurt. But knowing there's a God of jumping spiders and sea cucumbers, don't we think he might have some resources that could help? Let's talk about the goodness of God for a moment. If you go to Psalm 95, 6 and 7, the psalmist says, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That word maker is the same word that was used earlier when God said he made the depths and he made the, high, the mountain peaks. Here we see he's the maker of sheep and flock under his care. In other words, we go small now, we go micro into us, that God put us together. So again, I had some fun uh, on the internet this week because Everything the internet says is true. There's 30 trillion cells in the human body. There's 100 million cells in each eye. In your body, there are 60,000 miles of arteries. 4,000 taste buds on your tongue, unless you're old. Then it goes down to 2,000, which explains why we old people have to eat more. <laughs> there are more than 200 bones, our frame. There are more than 600 muscles that work them. I don't know how else to say it, except you look marvelous. You are a special creation of God. And according to Jesus, he keeps track of you. Do you remember how? Hairs of your head. That's his like Geiger counter on you in some way. You are under his care. You are the people of his pasture. Now, I want to stay in the farm world and share kind of what this means. When Jan and I pastored in New England, we had a good friend from Gordon-Conwell Seminary, Rodney Cooper, and he would come down once a year and preach at our church in, in Osterville, and it was a treat. And one time, he gave this illustration. Uh, he sent it to me. He, he said, uh, I grew up on a farm in Ohio. We raised about 1,000 pigs a year. In one field, we had two or 300 little oinkers running around. Every day at four in the morning, as I'd walk into the field to feed those guys, they'd scatter. Once a little pig came up and began to chew on my foot. So I picked him up and began to pet him. Soon he wanted down. I said, no, I'll let you down when I'm ready. At that moment, he let out a squeal like I had never heard before. 
And in about two seconds, 30 mama pigs weighing, weighing five to 600 pounds, each were heading my way. I put him down and I headed for the fence. I barely made it over and when I did, all the mama pigs were snorting and walking back and forth, daring me to come back over and bother one of their little kids. Rodney Cooper says, looking back at that situation, I realized the little rascal was screaming, but he was not intimidated. Why? Because he was only one squeal away from help. Now let me ask you something. If God's creatures, if one of God's creatures is that sensitive to the cry of one of its own, how much more sensitive is the heavenly Father to one of the cries of his own. He's a good God. The second reason we worship is because our hearts were made to worship this kind of greatness and this kind of goodness. Psalm 95.3 says that he's the great king above all gods. And the implication, one of the implications of that verse is there's gods everywhere. Indeed, there are You see, the issue is not whether or not we worship or are a worshiper. The issue is always, for every person in the world, what do you worship? Because every person worships. Take it from Harry Potter. You remember the mirror of Erised. Now, it's a children's book series. It's not too complicated, right? That's desire spelled backwards. What happened is Harry Potter would look in the mirror, and when he'd look in the mirror, he'd see his parents. And his parents would talk talk kindly to him and touch him on the shoulder. See, Harry Potter lost his parents when he was an infant. And so when he looked in the mirror of Erised, he saw his parents. He got so excited, he called over his best friend, Ron Wisely, and Ron Wisely came over. And when he looked into the mirror, Harry Potter thought he would see his parents, but he saw a, a, a stud athlete and the head prefect of the school. And Ron Wisely wanted to be a stud athlete and the head prefect of the school. And the mirror of Erised according to Harry Potter's mentor, is that whenever you looked in that mirror, it's the deepest desire of your heart. I'm telling you, everyone has a mirror. And what they want to see in that mirror is the deepest desire of their heart fulfilled. But the problem is, there's only one who can put our heart at rest from that mirror, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else that we carry around in our backs and we hope that will fix us you know, apocalyptic romance, uh, the perfect job, the perfect family, the perfect kid, whatever it is, all these other things we put in our mirror. As Harry Potter's mentors say, if you stand in that mirror too long, you will rot to death. It cannot satisfy your heart. Folks, before we talk quickly about the how, just this, you know, we come here And the purpose of these gatherings are not just so that you can like get a few songs that you really like and and get lifted up and hear a good message, makes you happy and, you know, go back out into the world feeling better than when you came in. I'm sorry. I mean, we hope some of that happens. But that's not the purpose of worship. The purpose of worship is to come in here and see the deep glory and the high beauty of God and totally realign our lives to it. 
That's why Annie Diller said, if we really understand what we're doing in worship, we should pass out crash helmets and have seatbelts in the chair because idols are flying everywhere. That's why we worship. How do we do it? First, we do it together. The language of the psalm is let us. It's, it's plural, first person. We do it together. Again, there's nothing wrong with private devotion and, and personal worship, but even the sense of the New Testament is this, that even those things you do at the time of the gathering you bring in here, and we do it together, that's worship. No one wrote about this better than C.S. Lewis. He described his trio of friends, the Inklings, Charles and Ron and C.S. Clive Staples, and um, they used to meet for port and smoke cigars, and they were deep, Jesus-loving brothers. And one of them died, Charles Williams died. And C.S. Lewis and Ron, they, they grieved, but there was a thought in C.S. Lewis's mind that says, oh, I'm gonna to have to lean harder on Ron. In fact, now that I have him to myself, I may even get to know him better. Here's what happened. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole person into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Charles's reaction to a specifically Charlesian joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less than Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself where the very multitude of the blessing, which no one can number, increases the fruition with each has of God. For every soul seeing him in her own way doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall also have. And if that's true on the human level, that the more we share our friends, the more of our friends we have, how much more with God. Here's the point. In order for Waterstone to be this beautifully uh, worshiping church, we need you here. We need you here in this room. Week after week after week, we need to see the Jesus in your eyes and the, the Jesus that your eyes have seen this last week. We need to hear the Jesus in your voice as you try to make a loud noise to the Lord. We need you here. And without you here, we are less. We worship together. Lastly, we worship being brought together by the gospel. We never get over the good news. Now, this psalm ended with a thump. You might remember that. It goes into this thing about today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And then it ends with this part like, they shall never enter my rest. And boy, that's a downer. Hold on to that. We'll come back next week. I'm just going to let that tension there a little bit. There's a Hebrews 3 and 4. They actually preach a sermon on those verses. So next week we're going to Hebrews and we're going to hear a sermon about how God forms us in worship. And we'll pick up these verses. But let me say this just as we get ready now to come to the table. Here's the big picture of what those verses mean. That sometimes in the history of God's people, 
we haven't been very good at worship. And do you know those times when we're not good at worship? Those are the times when Jesus is inviting in us into his rest, but we say, no, I got this. I got this. Either by saying, well, I, I want to chase this mirror over here and what's in that. Or we say, no, I can do this. I can be a good person. I can be a good conservative. I can be a good liberal. I can be, you know, I can look really good. I, I got this. And we wear our life on our back. And Jesus is always calling out to us saying, that's not going to last. That's not going to do it. Everything you have in that backpack, you're going to lose someday. Your relationships, your body, everything, you're losing it. It's like a wave going out already. You won't find rest in those things. You will only find rest in the greatness and goodness that I have. So what are you carrying in your backpack this morning, hoping it will fuel you in the wilderness? What are you carrying? I hope it's this. In Isaiah chapter 53, I'm so looking forward to our series in this fall in Isaiah. And one of our weeks, we're going to be in Isaiah 53. And there's a verse in Isaiah 53 that says, Jesus, will, the suffering servant, will see the results of his suffering and be satisfied. Let that sentence sit with you again. He will see the results of his suffering and be satisfied. What did he see? What did Jesus not have before he went to the cross and gained through the cross? You and me, his treasured possessions, his love, his joy, his grace, to be loved like that. That's what brings our heart rest. What keeps Waterstone fueled for mission? Worship. And what's that worship? That worship is staying fastened and focused on the goodness and greatness of God brought to us in the person of Jesus Christ. His love carried in our hearts is fuel for mission for a church, and it's the way through the wilderness for each one of us. I was reminded this week, re reading through Psalm 57, David's on the run from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him. You would think that David's instinct would be to pray, God, help me, God. And there's, there's him doing that in a lot of other psalms. But this particular psalm was unique in that every time David mentioned what was going on, his first response was worship. He said, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory fill the entire earth. David's response in the wilderness was to worship. Because worship, worship brings us to the greatness and goodness of the God who is for us in Christ. I'm asking, do you have that rest this morning? Do you have that rest?